We live in a time in which it is so easy to lose track of our real lived experience and become ensnared instead by the projections that we've created or that are being created by algorithms and social media, by the pressures of who we think we ought to be, by other people's expectations, by the limited beliefs and old maps we are still clinging to and trying to find ourselves in. And in the process, we miss the process. We miss the reality of where we are in the here and now. So how do we get back to center? How do we return to the lived experience as primary? And how how do we find a balance with the realities of social media? If we are building a business or a brand, if we are artists, or even if we're just interacting on social media to connect with people, how do we not lose ourselves? One of the people that I most admire, who is an artist, an activist, an author, and who embodies this daily personal practice of coming home to oneself, to not be pretending or projecting anymore, um, but to, to find that center place from which we can then create and live lives of courage and creativity and full embodied participation. Marley is a dancer, she's a writer. She describes her practice as being rooted in improvisation, as a compositional form that takes shape in movement videos, books, quilting, and online courses. She's very well known for her Instagram dance project called Personal Practice um, and has been featured in the New York Times, Dance Magazine, Vanity Fair, The Huffington Post. Her written work includes How to Not Always Be Working, and her most recent book, which we discuss on this podcast, is called Getting to Center, Pathways to Finding Yourself Within the Great Unknown. And as I always like to remind you, if you're not an artist, if you're not a dancer or a quilter, or consider yourself an artist, just remember, my definition of a creative is a living, breathing human being. So you're that. So as a creative, which you all are, Get ready to take some notes. This conversation is definitely one of my favorites. So let's dive right in to episode seven of Unknowing with Marley Grace. So Marley, I I have to begin by airing out to my listeners how I actually met you the first time. And I don't know if you know this. (laughs) You probably don't remember this. Circa, what would it have been? 2019 Christmas time. This is Mm pre-COVID, if you can remember, Mm -hmm. pre-COVID. You and Jackie and I think your family members were at a movie theater, downtown celebration, Grand Rapids. And you guys went on Christmas Day. And I think there was like maybe two other families that decided to go to the movie theater that same day. Now, I had been following you on social media. So I had a right real fangirl moment. I see you walking by with Jackie. Now, I want you to know, I recognize Jackie first, which tells you <laughs> what a fangirl I am on social media. Because I was like, that's Marley's Jackie. And then you walked in after. And I was like, that's Marley. And I think I said that. I think I said, hey, you're Marley. <laughs> you were super gracious about it. And you were just like, yeah, what's your name? Strange human. And I just told you how much I appreciate your work on social media and your books because you are such a presence of positivity and love and light. And you are a pioneer in redefining 
how spiritual practice is done in an integrated way, both at work, in relationships, and in particular at this young age of, of you know, millennial life that we are in. And so I just, I want to tell you, I'm still a super fan and I'm so pumped that you're on the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's so funny. I I definitely remember that moment and didn't realize it was you now interviewing me. Um, and lots of people recognize Jackie before me because she is taller and hotter. So that's makes sense to me. And she's maybe recognizable. I'm not sure. But um, and I love that you pointed out that I stopped and said, what's your name? Because I feel like that is what I've always learned to do is I feel like people see me and they get excited and they might get nervous. And then that's always been my tactic to be like, I'm just as interested in you, stranger person. Like, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't write books or share if I didn't have readers and community and an audience. So it's always flattering to me when someone thinks to come up to me and say something. And I always just like to like break down the wall a little bit and be like, cool, what are, who are you? What are you up to? Yeah, exactly. And I think in so many ways, one of the things I'm doing on the show is trying to move us out of the ways in which we pedestal other people, people we admire, but also how we pedestal systems of thought, beliefs, without even realizing it. You know, we, and I've been describing it on the show, is we, we turn them into maps. And we're so busy looking at the maps in our hands that we forget to trust our own embodied experience and where our intuition is maybe leading us off the expected path. So I want to begin by asking you about the maps or several maps that you were given in childhood to make sense of reality. Like, what were you kind of handed when you were younger to say, all right, here are the key markers, this is north, what did that look like for you? Wow. What a beautiful question. It makes me a little teary-eyed. I think, you know, I feel like maps were really given, maybe this is everyone's first map, but my first map feels like for my parents. And I feel very lucky that that map was always go make your art and do whatever you want. And this is also part of the like, my money map is also very twisted. You know, my parents, mm. I think it's tricky, like, you know, there's this middle ground. You have some people who get the map, like, go become a doctor. And that's how you make a lot of money. And that's what we do. Mm. And, you know, my map was the opposite. It was like, sure, go get a BFA in dance and and not probably make a lot of money from that. But, you know, then the, the opposite of that is that you don't get, um, it felt, always felt like it was a blessing and a curse to have no direction in that or, um, yeah, if that makes sense. So, but I'm really grateful that the map was just like, just keep dancing. I mean, it sounds, it's like, I hope you dance as a meme or something. It's like the, that was truly the map was like, we hope you keep dancing and keep, you know, when I was like, I think I want to go to college for mm-hmm. dancing. My parents were like, of course, that's what you want. That's the only thing you've done since you were five. So I guess that, <laughs> you know, they weren't like, I don't know, Marley. Is um And I think the map was like, I never really had people tell me I was like too much, which, um, what a gift, what a gift. I mean, I think I'm really lucky in that I was always loud and dancing in the mirror and dancing all around and singing and just really extroverted Gemini person. And nobody was ever like, that's a little too much. People ignored it. And so maybe that was part of the map that I learned to like, people can set their own boundaries. If they don't like it, they can go to a different room or, you know, do, you know, do something else. Um, 
yeah, those are the two maps that come to mind. Were those things congruent with any belief systems that you were handed as well? Like, were you given any particular religious upbringing? Many of our guests have been like, yes, I did. And then some of the artists that I've had on have been like, no, actually, we didn't. Like, they didn't hand me any of that, which was very freeing and liberating. And I kind of found my own way. So what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful I was handed no religious map. My parents are both like in sort of the agnostic, mm-hmm. I would say more agnostic than atheist. They're both like, we don't know what there is, so we can't say there is or isn't. Um, and I sort of made my own map for mm. my own journey. I mean, there was one point where my like first high school boyfriend was like deeply religious, and I was like, maybe I'll be Christian. And I feel like it was like the opposite. I feel like most people like grow up Christian and then they rebel and their parents are like, Oh no, I was like, maybe I'm Christian. And my parents were like, Oh no. no. (laughs) Um, Which was funny anyways, that didn't last, but it's interesting because I, you know, mostly through like recovery spaces, I have a really important relationship with God today. That is certainly nothing like a Christian God. I always say like lowercase G, no gender, but, um, you know, just shorthand for like higher power, spirit of the universe. And I, I live a really spiritual life filled with prayer today. And I'm, yes, you do. I'm, yes. And so I think I'm grateful I wasn't, the map was like, you can literally make up whatever you want. And that's right. And I was like, sounds good. Oh, there's something uh, incredibly just spacious about the amount of humility that they seem to have, right? So they said, even your your definition of agnosticism, it was like, oh, we know there's something or we believe in something, but we don't have to try to capture it or condense it in a particular frame of language. And that does give you permission then to move with, I think, the kind of fluidity that you demonstrate both in your art and your work and what you offer the world. Mm. Yes. So this is your map. You're, you're given a lot of space. I'm, I'm picturing your map right now, and I'm like, damn, that's some beautiful wide open spaces right there. I mean, <laughs> that's, yes, yes. So I want to zoom in to a moment in your life when maybe this has nothing to do with the map because you were given so much room in yours. But I want to talk about a moment when, when you maybe felt lost for the first time, or you felt like you were going off your own map, where you were leaving behind a certain terrain that you were familiar with and kind of falling into unknowing. I know in the book you've talked about huge sudden shifts and moments of transformation that have happened in your life. And I just wondered if you would begin by sharing one of those. I mean, I feel like, you know, the biggest unknown I've ever had was leaving Grand Rapids, was leaving Michigan. You know, Mm -hmm. I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, got my BFA at U of M and moved back to Grand Rapids. And then pretty shortly after I moved back, met John, who became my husband, and we built a really big life together and Mm -hmm. had a lot of community and a lot of shared spaces and things that we built. And then we got divorced and I decided to sell everything I owned and closed my shop and, and moved to California. And um, the beautiful spoiler alert to our, our story is that three years later, I moved back to Michigan. Me and John moved into a mansion together and ran an artist residency. And, um, you know, he is just more my family today than he ever was when we were married. And so that's probably my biggest life lesson in like, in like writing the map. I didn't have a map for like 
What's it like to realize you're gay, move back to your home state, live with your ex-husband for seven months and run an artist residency? I think I still haven't seen that map. And so, you know, I've always been really comfortable just writing my own and being like, Mm. I mean, pretty much everyone around us was like, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. That's weird. Or they were like, are you in love with each other? You know, there was just no one could conceive that we platonically would want to live together and collaborate together. I mean, that is actually what makes me teary-eyed is how deep our trust was in each other Mm. when even the people we trusted the most were kind of like, that's so weird. And we were just like, we literally don't care what you think. And it was, I think, some of the funnest life experience I've ever had was us. I mean, he taught me how to skateboard. We would stay up all night, just the two of us watching movies. We cooked for each other and we hosted almost 20 different amazing artists from all over the country and um, and really healed something that we needed to like heal together. So It's interesting because it's, it's very personal to you, this path that you were treading. And yet it seems as though there's also a collective rewriting of what divorce needs to look like. What does co-parenting, you know, for those of us who have kids and are divorced need to look like? Because there's so much of what you just shared that I relate to deeply in the fact that, especially here in West Michigan, as I went through my divorce and we chose to do so consciously, I mean, like I know conscious uncoupling got a bad rap with Gwyneth Paltrow, whatever, but it's the decision you make, the intention you set out to say, no, you know what? I do believe there's a kinder, loving way to do this, and we're going to move forward in trust, like you said. And man, it was like all of our friends were like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Wait, you guys are going to share an apartment so that your kids can stay in one house? Like, why are you doing that? Do you still love each other? Like, And having to kind of have the strength and clarity in your own relational bubble field, your own field, to be able to let those waves kind of come and recede and just stay the course and be like, this is what we're doing. What a profound way of rewriting or adding a page to your map, you know, Mm. and offering the world another picture of what it can be. Mm -hmm. I have to say, first of all, you write a ton, both in your writing and online, about the unknowing of your inherited sexual categories that led you to this deeper knowing of your own queerness. And it created not only a foundation for your current partnership, but it also opened you up to all kinds of forms of anti-oppression work, transformative justice work. And one of the things that I appreciate so deeply is that you continually are reminding us that none of this discovery, sexual discovery, Um, anti-oppression awareness, coming to grips and reckoning with our role in these systemic systems of um, racism and injustice, this isn't a linear process. And that it's the very systems themselves that try to make us think that it's A to B, B to C, that it's this very clean, progressive, linear path. So as you wrestled with these assumptions in your own body, how were you able to follow the drum of your own center enough to let go of your inherited limiting ideas of what you thought being gay was or what was keeping you stuck from your truest self, your freedom to express yourself however you felt called to be? 
Wow. You can edit this out if you want, Brie, but you are such an amazing interviewer. And I feel like I'm getting like energy work when you're talking to me. I'm like really calm and tingly. So I just want to share that. Um, Anyways, well, it's so interesting because I mean, I had so few examples of lesbians growing up in West Michigan. And there are certain businesses owned by queer people in Grand Rapids specifically that are not, I I think they're out in their communities, but they're not like, this is a queer space. They're like, this is a business and we happen to be gay and own it. And so I think even as I got older and was starting to be like, wait, aren't those people lesbians? But we don't hear about it. We just secretly know, like they're not in the closet, but it's just not um, celebrated. I think it is more and more. Absolutely. But yeah, as a kid, that was not a map I was given, if you will. (laughs) And so um, this feels like, like a private map sort of, Mm -hmm. I'm loving this like map idea. This is really helping me. Um, I feel like we especially saw this last year on social media. And even in the past couple of years, this idea that if you're not up to speed, you're bad. And of course, last year I was what one might call up to speed. So I wasn't feeling like pressured. I was like, oh, I can actually help, especially maybe some other white women join me where Mm -hmm. I've been for a little bit. But me six years ago was certainly not up to speed, didn't run a business in the way that I would today that would reflect who and what experiences I would want to see at the table. And I think for me, it's about not sitting in that shame for too long, right? Because that's not going to move me forward or create more space for my own nonlinear growing. And so, uh, and that's the thing is there's so many different kinds of teachers and voices. Like some people need a teacher who's like, you're not on time. So speed up and get to work. Yeah, And that's great. And some people need a teacher who's like, welcome to the table. Took you maybe a little longer than it should have, but here are the books, here are the study groups, and here's how to weave it into your practice in your life. And so that's where I have always felt comfortable is sort of like softly ushering people in almost in a Trojan horse way. I feel like I'm like, come over here. And then when they get there, I'm like, listen up. Like I'm like, I'm like more serious, but um, yeah, you know, I feel like that is part of dismantling internalized racism and dismantling white supremacy is being anti-perfectionist. I feel like many of my closest queer friends, we have internalized homophobia. Like many of my dear friends who are black have internalized, you know, anti-blackness. It's like, we're all holding internalized phobias against the things that we are. So I think the gentler we are about that to be like, oh yeah, these are my limited beliefs. And if I try to get it right, especially as a public person, if I'm really feel like I need to get it right in front of people, I'll freeze up and um, people aren't going to be liberated with me getting frozen. So, you know, I try to unfreeze is something I think about a lot. So I invite anyone listening to just notice if you start freezing up, because you feel bad about your limited beliefs and you're scared you're going to do it wrong and try it anyways. And social media and the mob of people who have nothing else to do other than watch you fail are watching you and they're not going to be nice and you can ignore them. You can have your own boundaries because that's part of it, right? That's part of why we're scared to unfreeze is because 
we have examples of how we get punished for trying to unfreeze in front of other people. And so it's also okay to do private work. I don't show everybody all the unfreezing I'm doing. Believe me, there's a lot of really messy unfreeze. It's called melting. Unfreezing is called melting and it's dripping everywhere. Maybe keep the hairdryer melting to yourself or just, you that. know, find the spaces where you feel safe to melt. <laughs> yes. And, and that's the thing. It's like, there's the different containers. Mm. I don't, my newsletter does not look like my morning pages. My morning pages are unhinged and no one can ever read them, including me. Um, <laughs> and then there's my newsletter where I've formed my thoughts. I run them by other people and then they exist for the public to read or, or to learn from. And so for me, part of the, maybe you said this, but I'm just, I'm really clear about being in process. You know, that's another thing that I borrow from like recovery spaces is just being humble and, and humility and just being like, I don't know all the answers. And this is where I'm at right now. As soon as you're like, I know what I'm talking about. And here is the answer. That's when people come for you. And that's when you will freeze back up and that's not good. Mm -hmm. So I feel like just really saying, I don't know is helpful. And, and committing to knowing more. And that right there is part of why I really was so drawn to exploring unknowing as a path, as a gateway, because it's that willingness to be vulnerable, willingness to be in process. I mean, you mentioned earlier, and this is where I want to go next, so it was perfect segue, is the kindness that you hold within toward yourself, for yourself, is the kindness that then radiates out of you and is exactly the key to unlocking and healing, you know, not just ourselves, but healing socially from all of these systems of oppression. That's the magic sauce. That's the secret ingredient is the, that kind of compassion that does something. It shifts hierarchies into communities. And so I have to read my favorite quote from Getting to Center because I can't think of, and I was like, it took me a second, but I was like, no, it's got to be this one. I can't think of a more perfect example of this level of self-love and radical okayness that you bring to the table than this quote. Here you are, you're talking about what practices. You say, defining your practice is a first step in healing an inner voice that is unkind. Focus on the simplicity of new pathways and new meanderings and ways to pivot to take you back to what works. Each time with a little less fuck you for leaving and a little more welcome back. <laughs> I just. That's good. <laughs> I just adore that. And I laughed so hard when I read it because immediately I felt in my body the ways in which. I can bring perfectionism in sneaky ways to even spiritual practice or creativity or social change. And so you talk about practice in such a kind and inviting way. You invite us to break down these voices of attack, these violent voices that we attack ourselves with. But you also broke practice into four different categories. And I want to talk about that because I, I want to talk about rhythm. So you say, maybe we break down practice into art practice vision, business practice vision, personal practice vision, and ritual practice vision. So tell us about this rhythm that you're inviting us to live into with that quadrant and how we could think of examples of each. Oh, so nice. Um, it's so funny in my studio that I'm in right now, I have a sticky note here that says Roger, which I talk about in my other book, who's my like really mean voice inside my head. 
And then I also have a sticky note here that says Gloria, because Gloria is who I hired to tell Roger that he needs to leave us alone so we can get our work done. Um, so that's what my brain does. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm thinking a lot about like creative attention and what we pay attention to and the many pots on the stove, the many containers of creativity. And, you know, I was just explaining to someone like, I don't make money selling quilts. I make money teaching a quilt class. And I keep those things very, very separate because as soon as I mix business into selling quilts, that would require a separate business plan. And for me, it would take the fun out of quilting and it would put a pressure on quilting I'm not interested in. I'm very good at teaching quilt class. It's my favorite place to be. People make beautiful quilts and that's what I like. I like that exchange. It makes sense. Finished quilts are for gifts Mm. and raffles to raise thousands of dollars for things. That's what I use quilts for. And so that's part of how I think of it is quilting is my art practice vision. Teaching quilting is my business practice vision. Um, You know, my ritual practice vision is setting up the altar before I quilt. And then my personal practice vision is sewing the same thing over and over until it makes sense. And so the same quadrants can exist with one thing. And it's like, I got clear at some point with, again, where my income comes from and where it doesn't. I don't try to make money dancing. Mm -hmm. I make money dancing sometimes when I choreograph a music video or collaborate with people, but I have never relied on dancing being part of my income. My writing is how I make an income on in my newsletter, Patreon, online classes, and book advances. And I learn what I want to write about by dancing. So they're not separate, but I'm really clear that dancing is not the container that I make money on. The irony is then that dancing, the thing I make the least amount of money on is also what I have a college degree in and what has the most press. My dancing's in the New York Times. It's in Vanity Fair. It's in the Huffington Post. And I don't really make money at it, but it's like, it's a huge part of who I am publicly and privately and in my practice. And I have a whole nother part of my movement practice. That is the ritual part that I don't share on Instagram, that I don't make money to teach. That's me like with my eyes closed, rolling around in the grass. So I think that's where it's just um, the containers and like breaking it up into those quadrants has really helped me figure out also like, what part of my process do I want to keep private? Mm, Um, mm. And what part do I want to share? And what part do I want to monetize? And when your name is Marley Grace and your business is Marley Grace, it's really easy to get them confused. And so um, I have to be really clear about what happens behind the scenes and when it's ready to emerge. It's amazing to me that you're living out in such practical ways this deep wisdom of needing to quadrant out these different areas of your life. And for some reason, it's reminding me of the fact that the Benedictine monks used to do kind of a similar sort of practice. They would split the rhythm of the day into four quadrants. And it was pray together, work together, pray alone, work alone. And so every day there was a cycle of recognizing that there was personal work that needed to be done. There was certain prayer that was personal that was needing to happen in isolation and in solitude. But that there was also a need for communal prayer of some sort. So, you know, in the monastic chanting or, you know, kirtan or whatever it would be. And then there was 
communal work that would keep the monastery going. So as I'm listening to you, I'm struck by the level of clarity, and I can't recommend this enough that everybody that's listening to this podcast go get this book, seriously, because it is such a handbook for our times, especially those of us who are in this like first half of life and are trying to figure out industry and work. And how do we delineate between that line in a world of social media? What is personal? What is private? And what is part of this quote-unquote brand that we're creating in the world, both with our work, but also in the way that social media naturally turns us into thinking of ourselves as a brand? So, I'm somewhat curious about this because I discovered you accidentally on social media, not knowing anything about you. I just, as some random scroll algorithm brought me to you and I'm watching you move and dance. And I'm like, I was just addicted to this movement that you were doing and the prayerful intention and the vitality of your expression physically, it transcended the medium of social media. It, It did impact. I felt something from it. I felt the sense of grace and expansion and movement and trust. And so you've written about social media. You've brought it up in this conversation a few times. And you've also written about it in How to Not Always Be Working, which I also recommend. Help us with social media here. Like, what what are we to do with this monster that has become such a central part? And I shouldn't call it a monster, but this platform that has become such a central part of how we engage day-to-day, connect, build our brands creatively, or share our lives with the world. It can be damaging. It can be mindless. It can also be beautiful and connecting. So can you give us some pointers on how we can create a better, healthier, conscious relationship with social media? Yeah, I have nuanced answers for this, and I have really bratty fast answers for this. Like, I'm like, never log in again, give someone else your password, (laughs) have someone else run your social media account and never, ever go there again, which is what I've done. Mm. And it's, and I have a very, I have an extremely different life today. Not a, Mm. not a sort of different life. I have a very different life from Mm. never going there. And the nuanced answer is I spent the last eight years building a lot of really important relationships there. And I think the question I get is more from, you know, I've maybe helped a lot of people who are sort of at a similar place in their career as me make that switch, who can afford the virtual assistant and can hand their password over. You know, I'm not building a career from scratch at this point. I've been building this career for almost a decade. And so, yeah, there is some privilege in that. I'm in a different place. And so when someone who's like just starting their business out is asking me this, it's harder for me to answer. Um, I absolutely do not think it's good or bad. I think everyone has a really different experience with it. I have a few, and I say few because I really only have a few friends who can log in and log out. They can log in, they can make their posts and they never, they like it truly, it it overwhelms them. They're like, this is too much. And then they just leave. It overwhelms me. And six hours later, I'm like, maybe I should eat. You know what I mean? I'm like, maybe I should go outside. Like it's, it consumes me so quickly, both feeling like I want to be cut up with information and not be left out of the convo and just the dopamine that I could be looking at nothing for six hours. It's just what it scientifically does to my brain, right? So we have those few different parts to it. Um, 
Yeah, I can only speak from the I. I'm very careful to not be like, we are as a society. I'm like, I can't know what other people's experience. You know, I've had people who come to my monthly social media talk and they're like, I love it. I love Instagram. And I'm like, that's so cool. Like have an <laughs> absolutely great time there. Like I didn't mean to say don't ever go, but mm. for me again, you know, my, my great, my grand experiment was to totally deactivate for four months. And I knew it had to be that extreme. I was like, yeah. I want to feel what it's like to not even think about posting there. Um, and it took me eight months to prepare for that. Like it took me yeah. eight months to like save up, make a plan, pivot in my business, you know? So I also just want to say it's not as easy as just logging out. You know, I think that's where I get frustrated that most books written about this are by white cis straight men who made millions of dollars in technology and then are like, quit all your social media. It's ruining your life. And it's like, okay. Um, maybe if I had $1 million, I would just never come back. Um, right. And again, it's like part of the reason I decided to return was I also see when I host one quilt raffle, it can bring in over $4,000. I did a live Instagram live dance class and raised over $2,000 for the Grand Rapids Mutual Aid Fund right mm -hmm. when COVID hit last year. Mm -hmm. I can tag a friend and they can get five thousand new followers in a day and have their class sell out. It's like, there's a lot of magic that can yeah. exist there. And so my question to myself was like, how can I use that and not destroy this attention that has returned to me? And yeah. the answer was to have someone else post for me. Again, my virtual assistant does a lot of different things for me, but she maybe spends... 20 minutes a week running my Instagram account, the same amount that I posted when I was on there for 20 hours a week, literally takes her less than one hour a week. So I think that's where it also feels like my role to be like, when it comes to addiction, because I've been addicted to a lot of things in my life, we've, we have a lot of excuses to there hold on to it as tight as we yeah. can. And so when people are like, well, I can't afford to pay someone, I'm like, I'm just told you it takes one hour. Mm -hmm. That person makes $30 an hour. I pay $30 a week to get 20 hours of my life back, not want to die, want to go outside, be able to make art. So that's all I can tell you. So wow. those are my thoughts. Wow. And the other thing I'll say, if you're not willing to pay someone else is- this is tricky. We discovered this today as my assistant was posting some stories for me that we did see you can't, as far as we understand, tag a story from this place. But Facebook business does have a dashboard. You could also use like Planoly. There's like all mm -hmm. these third-party apps where you can access your DMs or no, I think you can't actually see your DMs from Planoly. Anyways, there's some ways to set up there's systems yeah. where you can not see a feed, but can see your own stuff. So if you want to manage your own comments, you could literally set up Planoly to tag stories and have Facebook business to read DMs and comments if you wanted to. And I would suggest having those on your computer, having someone else change your password so you can't download the app. Um and going forward, you know, and that, that's the other thing is I, I've always felt 
people don't talk about it seriously enough. I think people are like, I don't know. It's like kind of bad for you. And I'm like, that's some suicidal ideation shit for me. We're not talking like, "Mm, I just don't feel good. We're talking like I spent a lot of years not really paying attention to being alive because I was paying really close attention to what I looked like on the internet to other people. But that level of seriousness is precisely what I so appreciate about your work and that you've brought that level of clarity and that you bring up addiction because it's, you know, as a society, there are these kinds of deep grooves that we are just very comfortable being in, you know? So big alcohol is another example where it's like, no, of course, you always drink when you socialize. And for our generation and younger, having social media is second nature to the point where it's become so habitual that people aren't willing to get curious about how much of our lives are being run by these platforms. And so what I hear you saying is that we need to have radical courage to really look at where we are not being honest with ourselves about our relationship to social media, but also the radical courage it takes to say, where am I like, where am I losing myself? Where am I losing life? Where am I seeping energy? Mm. And recognize when those forces are happening that, that, that we have to make an intentional choice. And you talk a lot about intention. And this is something that really struck me in your book is that you substitute commitment for intention and that it's changed not just your relationship with work, but it's changed your relationships and how you think about relationship. And so the power of setting an intention is, as you say, and and if I'm getting this wrong, please stop me, but it's the willingness to wake up each day and say, this is what I want to live. This is my value. So I'm going to live in alignment to that value versus the commitment or the maybe unrealistic expectation is that's what it is. You know, we're going to stay together forever. That's what it is. And so it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy then that it doesn't work because you're missing that core element of waking up every day with an intention. You also have spoken a lot about devotion. And so I kind of want to bring these things together with intention and devotion as these ways in which we can practice daily and seek out this kind of radical courage that you just talked about to be willing to step off the expected norms with social media, relationships, work, whatever it may be. Talk to us about the relationship that you see between living with intention and practicing devotion. Yeah. My desk in front of me is, as I showed you my post-its, is covered in notes. And so I'm I'm looking at some of them thinking about devotion and commitment. I mean, I have to really shout out therapy as a map, you know, having a therapist, <laughs> which I feel like someone who sort of had late, late, I'm, you know, I'm only 33 years old, but later in my like self-development got a therapist. Like it wasn't until fall of 2019, I got a therapist. And so we've been working together since then. I love her. Um, and Something we talk a lot about is like being in integrity, mm-hmm. which which um, feels really similar to the like waking up and and being like, what are my commitments today? What are my intentions? Kind of to connect it to social media. I feel like when I was really in the height of just like my energy seeping into that space, I wasn't living in integrity in mm-hmm. my friendships, my relationships, in the way I handled money and in, in just being outside and reading and like all the things I used to love and making art, you know, I just right. felt like I wasn't 
and then that's where it swings into devotion. Like I just wasn't devoted to, I was like devoting myself to the screen, you know, mm -hmm. and that wasn't feeling good. And so I have this little list about more alone time that's sitting on my desk that says, let God in, receive ideas, be in your own aura, love Jackie fully, access visions of abundance and creativity, detach from technology, center in recovery, like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like oh. that's my like list. Oh. That's where I want to go every day. And I need to write it down. Like I have this other list that I made that was really important as I was getting ready to return to Instagram, which was like, here's what I am. I'm an artist, a dance. Like I listed all these things. And then I was like, I am not a healer. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a newscaster. I'm not a marketing guru. I wrote my politics and principles seamlessly weave into my work. Like, mm. I don't want to use mm. social media to like perform my politics every day. Like, if you Ooh. really want to find the information, look at my work. And I wasn't living in integrity before. My work wasn't as deep as it could be. So I had to shallowly <laughs> signal boost it somewhere else. And so I feel like that has been the biggest thing is like, my integrity, commitment, intention, devotion, just like the more detached I am. Because the other thing about our intentions and our intuition is like, we have to be, that's why that list is called like more alone time allows you to. It's not like, here's my hopes. It's like, I have to be not consuming to access a lot of that. That's and right. that's the other thing about not just social media, just literally having Wi-Fi is like you have access to millions of people's opinions. And that's not how our brains are wired. It wasn't working for me to read 600 people's thoughts about everything every day. That was, right. I wasn't really having very many of my own thoughts. So, yeah. So that rhythm of embracing solitude and embracing detachment is what seems to be unlocking for you a distance between the projected image of Marley and the lived experience of Marley. Yes, I couldn't and have said it better. It's so fascinating because if you think about social media, so much of it is trying to reverse that relationship. It's pulling us out of our lived experience and entirely into creating this projected image and thereby bypassing the grace-filled, wonder-filled opportunity of this present moment in my body to be here now. This is one of the things that I appreciate so deeply about your work is that I've been a fan of mysticism and have studied from so many teachers over the years, and it's beautiful. A lot of those maps are very esoteric, though. It's like another version, a very conscious, you know, very high-level version, but it's another level of projecting image versus living in the lived experience. And so you bring it down to this level of like, no, social media, no, how you engage in work, how you think about your identity, how you attach to certain ideas and categories, and also how you relate. So I want to pivot and ask you some questions about presence, lived experience, and relating, because you have a whole chapter dedicated to the practice of not knowing, and you have a chapter about vulnerability and hope and all these very digestible almost feel like they're ingredients to a full and beautiful life, right? 
So you say this, and I just have to I have to read this again because I love quoting you back to you. It's so fun. But you say making one decision doesn't prevent you from ending another situation, as you're talking about not knowing. Nothing prevents us from pain, from endings, from death, or from dying ourselves. But we can continue to devote ourselves to the unknown and the mystery of our lives, and we can let it be sweet. And so you have this way of inviting us back into our bodies, back into ourselves. And one of the things that you said in that chapter is you said, step one, when you're in the land of unknowing, if I were to describe it that way, you said, turn it over into trust. And here's the deal. I've, I've been studying all these paths and you know, I'm, I'm into mysticism, meditation and all this stuff. But I just recently got into yoga because for me, yoga was like, oh my God, yoga. And I just couldn't because I didn't have the like hot yoga pants and the whatever bralette. So I've been avoiding it, but I've just been getting into it through COVID. And even though I'm a former dancer, I don't think I was ever able to turn trust into a somatic and spiritual simultaneous expression until now. So how is trust part of movement? How is that integral to this way of living? And I see you doing this in the body prayer way that you dance. But talk to us about the somatic relationship of sort of unfurling these places and being like, okay, like how you ended that list with like yourself. I'm enough. Um, I deeply relate with my relationship to Pilates, which I've always been like, that is what hot girls do. And I don't understand what that is. And now I literally like buy thongs and hot yoga pants and <laughs> have my, and put my bala bangles on. And I'm like, I'm a Pilates queen. So that's what's <laughs> yeah. happening. Um, so again, we can always be pivoting. We don't know. We don't know. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. You might become a Pilates person. Um, okay. You know, I think, um, hold on. I have to grab this thought. Let me see where it went. Um, oh, the part where I said, let it be sweet reminds me of when I can fully embrace the unknown and trust that I don't know anything and actually have no control. It's the most freeing feeling in the entire world. Like oh. I'm when I'm fully like God is in charge, Jesus, take the wheel. I literally, I literally can't know anything. I sometimes I say the only thing I can can control every day is how much water I drink. And even that sometimes my brain, I feel like my brain's against me and I can't control. But um, to me, like, uh, you know, and this is some more like 12 step language is like full dependence on God is full autonomy and independence in the world mm. is like, if I fully rely on some power greater than myself and relinquish any idea that I'm in control I will experience for me a lot less anxiety, a lot less fear about the future, just all of that stuff. And, you know, in terms of like translating that to dance and somatic movement, you know, something else that makes me laugh sometimes is I'll have people watch personal practice videos or see me dance and they're like, wow, you're so embodied. Like, what's it like to be so embodied. And I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. I'm just really good at performing. Like <laughs> many personal practice videos, I'm completely dissociated and not in my body at all. I just, mm. I, if anything, I'm doing that to get in my body. So for mm. part of that video, I might not be in not it all there, the way. Right. I'm like coming back into myself almost every time I dance. And yes, I'm an extremely embodied person. I don't mean to be like, <laughs> I'm just faking it. It's just another interesting projection. 
or I'll see comments when I'm like dancing to some pop song in my underwear. People will be like, I want to be as happy as you, which is great. And I want them to feel that. I would love for them to be inspired to be happy and put on pop music. But you should know that the poppiest personal practice songs are because I feel like absolute hell. And I'm like, I should probably put some pop music on so I don't feel like hell anymore. And so again, I think I try to always be like, none of this equates. Just because I post a hot selfie does not mean I feel hot. And that was part of the thing about going back to Instagram is I really, I love what you said about, yeah, I've always felt like personal practice defies social media. I rarely read a comment. I never look at how many likes a video has. I don't follow anyone on it. It truly was always like, this is just where I put my dance videos. Um, Tens of thousands of people watch those videos and love them and love to dance. I mean, that was never the point. The point was like, I should make some dance videos. And now people love to dance and that makes me happy. And so that was my roundabout way of some, some maybe answering your question. Sure. No, you did. And I think part of what I feel is, I mean, almost full circle to where we began with the expansive map that you were handed and that you charted yourself is this radical humility. You know, you're constantly saying like, look, we don't know. I, I wasn't into Pilates. Now I am. And you don't know. It looks like I'm dancing to this pop song because I feel super hot right now and things are great. But really, it's a practice to get myself there. So it's almost like you're saying you're granting us permission to live in a space in which there's enough room around us where we've detached from the obsession of the brand we're creating enough to just be and become and be free in our own space and with kindness to like ourselves and to feel permission to express ourselves. And I I really appreciate that because that's, again, mentioning the fact that I've spent a lot of time studying in these spaces in which the teachers are like gurus and there's this hierarchy of awe that gets radical aura of just like glory, you know, behind them and they have all the answers and they know the things. But what I've seen happen again and again, Marley, is people come They want to learn these practices, but the guru aura almost like ensnares them into kind of projecting their own power out of themselves and up out to that teacher. Mm. And so this is one of the things I deeply appreciate about your entire work is that you're teaching from a vulnerable space of saying, hey, I'm I'm on the path with you. Here are the things I'm learning. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what's worked. Here's what's not. It's just spacious and humble, like the map that you were given. There's so much room. There's so much room. Mm. Thanks for saying that. I love the word ensnares. It's so, um, like, really brings me into, I, like, shuddered. I was like, oh. I mean, I think, I definitely identify as a teacher, and I want to say that that's a different skill than, like, facilitating, but Mm -hmm. I, I read a lot and think a lot about facilitation as a skill and how to bring that into my teaching as much as I can. Mm. Like when I teach quilt class, I'm like, yes, I will factually teach you skills that you don't know. And there's 38 of us here. I would imagine many of you have things to say to each other. And so, Mm. I, I mean, that's part of why I love it so much is everyone is, you know, everybody steps up to the microphone in many different ways to share with each other. And Yeah, it's interesting. I've definitely gotten feedback before where um, people read my book or something and they're like, (laughs) one of my favorite ones, 
I wish I had it in front of me. It was like, this book reads like a deranged text at 2 a.m. from a friend and they're like, it's terribly written. And then they go on to list like five ways that the book changed their life. Like they can't <laughs> stop highlighting it and quoting it, but it's bad. And I was like, oh, like people are confused that I don't act like a guru. Mm. They're like, well, she's mm. changing my life, but she's not great at her job. Mm. And I always joke, I'm like, I never promised you I was a good writer. I did not put this book out and say like, this is my most well-written work. I was like, here's a thing I wrote. And mm-hmm. it might sound like a deranged text from your friend at 2 a.m. And you might highlight the whole thing. And, you know, it's like I highlighted the whole thing and cried through the whole thing. It's terribly written. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that is one hell of a Goodreads review, you know, it's, it's because people want a guru. It's confusing to them when, when you don't place yourself as that. And I will say on the other hand, it is part of my life's work to get a little more comfortable standing in my knowledge. You know, it can be easy that I pendulum to the side of like, well, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but let's give it a whirl. It's Mm. like, no, Mm. I do know what I'm talking about. And I'm on the path with you and I'm a couple steps ahead of you. Wow. What an invitation, because I do think there is a new way of leading that's humble. There's a humble leadership at play. There's a vulnerable leadership and you're not giving away the power, which is again, that pendulum of you either have all the knowledge and the certainty or you are a student. You know, you're not giving into that duality and you're saying, no, 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 it's both. And I can hold the post with clarity and intention to say, I have lived experience I'm here to offer and I'm with you. So wrapping up here, Marley, I always like to close conversations by asking, where are the edges of unknowing calling to you in your life right now? Like, where are you most being moved into unknowing? Yeah. Well, it was interesting when you asked at the beginning, I almost was like my most unknown time is right now, which is maybe always the answer. Maybe it's literally always right now, but we live in a temporary place. Everything we own is in storage. We're sort of waiting to see if we want to buy a house, where that'll be. And in a lot of ways, that unknown is really fun. It's really fun to be like, here we are. We don't know what's next. And that's a hell of an edge to be like, it's a little disorienting sometimes to be like, I don't love to not know where we're going to be in six months. And when have I ever really known where I would be in six months? Like, that's (laughs) the thing. Six months before I got divorced, sure as hell thought I was going to stay married, you know, like uh, (laughs) landlords kick you out, your house burns down. I don't know. Like, we don't actually ever know. And so I think that's what kind of brings me that relief when I'm like, well, I really want to know where we're going to live. It's like, you never really know where you're going to live because you never know what's going to happen. So true. Oh, what a perfect way to wrap up this rich conversation. Because I also am in a deep, deep, deep hole of unknowing. It's so deep. I'm like between jobs. I've got two kids. I have no idea what's next. And here we are making a podcast about unknowing. So it feels like the universe was like, go ahead. Here's your master class while you're working on this podcast. So I, I often say, like, do you have any advice for me, for our listeners, for, for this time? But what I'd really like to do is ask you to close with reading the very last page and a half of your book. Because... When I read it, I felt like it was like it was a prayer, like it was a blessing that hovered over me and stayed with me. And you're such a permission granter that I think 
listeners are going to enjoy your words of permission. It's making me feel really emotional to even look at it. It's so funny how much I need to read this today. I'm like, okay, good luck, Mar. I hope you get through this without crying. Okay, here we go. Do my best. It says, I say, I should say, I want you to go forth into the world with this new information. And I want you to transform the people around you with your joy and vulnerability. I want you to let grief wash over you so that you may be reborn over and over again. I want you to build the canoe to take your people to the other side of the river. I pray for your imposter syndrome to fall away, for ease to fill your days, and for discomfort to be accepted one day at a time in all its mystery and pain. I pray you find glory and magic in every small thing, that you turn gratitude into action, that generosity becomes your way of living. And most of all, I pray that you keep your center, that you get to it, and that you get to it again, over and over until you die, because that is what being alive is, remembering and recentering. There is no right way to do this, and there is no timeline too short or too long. You are right on time. You can begin today. And if you fuck it all up, you can start over at any time. I promise to keep doing the same. The one thing that is always true, no matter what year or what day, is that I promise to love so bright and be so alive that it beams back into the earth and the water and into the everything. Easy does it. <laughs> Almost got through it right at the end. <laughs> Marley. You are such a gift to all of us in this world. And thank you so much for being such a humble wisdom teacher of our time, just giving us wisdom in practical ways and beautiful ways. And for all the permission that you've granted me to be in my body and to trust that inner compass as I navigate unknowing, I'm so thankful. Thanks for being on the show today. This was really, really special to me, and I'm excited to listen to your other episodes. So as we continue to learn how to not be dependent on the maps, but to come back to center as Marley invited us to, back to the body, back to our lived experience, to our own inner knowing in the midst of unknowing, here are a few things that I'm taking from this conversation as true North wisdom. I loved her invitation to consider anti-perfectionism as anti-oppression work. I certainly have had this experience as an artist uh, when I get frozen, when I feel stuck, when I feel like I can't create an Nine times out of 10, it's because I have some sort of perfectionistic expectation that's getting in the way of the creative flow. And I loved how Marley brought that into anti-oppression work for us to consider and notice the, the moments and the places where we're freezing up and to move into those spaces with kindness and compassion to allow ourselves to melt I also love that she was very, very clear that some of that work is private, which brings me to another piece of True North wisdom, boundaries about what is private and personal and what is external and when to share what we share. I mean, there's so much in there for us to really integrate 
In terms of how we engage on social media, I felt the invitation to consider what the rhythm of my life is. As Marley was talking about the four different quadrants, maybe a takeaway for us is to consider what the quadrants are in our life and how to notice where we're leaking energy unnecessarily and drawing up healthy boundaries. Finally, I am deeply moved by the level of kindness that Marley emits in how she speaks to herself and how she speaks to her audience, to her readers, how she interacts with social media. She's found a way to do it with the kind of compassion that grants permission and creates space, so much space, that then we feel permission to create and co-create with her. I want to be that kind of permission-granting, kind human being, too. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take that wisdom and maybe put some sticky notes around my house that remind me to like myself. That's it for today's episode. If you found this conversation meaningful in any way, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. One is to rate this podcast and share it with a friend or consider becoming a patron. This podcast is entirely brought to you because of patrons. So if you'd like to find out more about becoming a patron and getting access to the masterclass on knowing season one that accompanies this podcast, you can visit unknowing.org. Or if you are on social media, hopefully practicing very limited and careful boundaries as Marley has invited us to, you can check out my account at Bree Stoner or the Unknowing podcast account. Both of them have links to the Patreon community. You can check it out there. The music that you're listening to is by Avila, a duo that I'm a part of. You can get this song on iTunes. It's called Some Understanding. And finally, remember, as the poet Rilke says, be patient with all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying to.